The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. You're our 17th show. And we're live. Hello. Uh, welcome to uh, to what we do in lieu of fun, which is hang out with us. Uh, well, <laughs> which is, I can never get, you have like a nice tagline, Ben, and I've just haven't like absorbed one yet. So I, I make mean, it up every time. Well, <laughs> like, you can do that. It's kind of, you could say the date and some things that are going on. And okay, uh, there we go. You know, I should do that. It is April 10th. Uh, 2020. It is the 17th episode episode (laughs) in lieu of fun show. Um, I am Kate Klonick. This is Ben Wittes, and we are joined today by Doug Bernstein, who is an emergency physician. Um, I don't know the name of your hospital, so you can tell us, but he has been an emergency physician. You've been for over 10 years, I think like 10 to 12 years. I don't know how you count residency I still don't know how we count that. Yeah. But yeah, I've been practicing as a, as an attending for seven or eight years now at this point. Yeah. Great. And you're, um, you work at, um, at a hospital in, um, Virginia. I don't know if you'd call it rural it's in Richmond. Um, and we are just (laughs) the capital. I mean, yeah, but very rarely does that mean much in terms of whether something is rural or not. It's a big city. (laughs) Is it? Okay. I'm going to, I promise I haven't. It's not Manhattan. For the show. <laughs> um, but I'm going to get a lot of hate mail from people from Richmond now. But uh, but no, uh, Doug, thank you for joining us. Welcome to In Lieu of Fun. Um, we are delighted to have you. Uh, we just kind of, uh, we've just been kind of in the last two and a half weeks, been having a lot of people on, um, mostly people that we know and um, have personal connections to, to kind of just come on and have chit the chat and have a drink and have informal discussions about how coronavirus is impacting their themselves personally, their careers, kind of what their, what their feelings and thoughts are about everything that's going on. Um, and I've kind of, you know, we have talked about this because we're, we've been friends for a while. Um, you know, I'm kind of a huge dork about medicine and emergency medicine. And I kind of like, I think that it's a fascinating area. And so I have been sitting here for a lot of like this, really wondering what things are like on the front lines for doctors and nurses and how much that's varied across, um, different types of hospitals, teaching public, private, um, and, uh, areas that are small or rural, kind of like Cape Cod where I am now, um, or, uh, medium-sized cities like Richmond or really large cities like New York, obviously, or LA. Um, and I'm just kind of, you know, I'm sure you have a much more extended network of, oh, look, there's a Doug fangirls that just joined in the chat. <laughs> I'm very- oh, there, there's, there's a lot of those actually. <laughs> Doug, this is great. Normally we have trolls that just like won't <laughs> stop harassing us. This is a fantastic, this is a fantastic development. Watch out because the fangirls may turn out to be trolls yet. Yes, that's if true. You were, they if start... you were a clever troll, 
you might very True. well pose as a fangirl. I'm hoping that these fangirls are Rebecca and uh, Rebecca and your daughters in the other room. <laughs> they, they probably are. They probably are. Just be careful, guys. Yes, it's true. Anyways, um, just kind of give us uh, give us a sense of how all of this has affected you professionally, personally, to the extent that you're willing to talk about it. Uh, we were talking earlier about like being a parent and homeschooling. Um, two on top of everything else. I have no idea how you do that on top of like running the type of hours that you typically run as an emergency room doctor. Yeah, well, I mean, I think everyone uh, across, a, you know, all jobs right now is struggling. Uh, parents, you know, they have so much to do with homeschooling and trying to, I mean, I often find myself saying to my wife, you know, I, I wasn't made to be an elementary school teacher. That is just not my forte. Uh, and yet we're forced into that. And it's, um, it is a big challenge, I think, for, for us and for everybody. In medicine, um, I think there's its own set of challenges right now on a couple different fronts. One of them, you know, it may be obvious, but when you have to, we're going to work, we're in these sort of areas that are not clean and there's a lot of germs around. And then, you, you know, you talk to different people about how they're coping with that and coming home and quarantining themselves at home or not even mixing with their families sometimes. Um, I personally have kind of taken a middle ground approach where, you know, versus my car, the kids aren't allowed in my car anymore. I change and shower immediately when you come home. Um, a lot of people are doing also some kind of, um, people are making their own versions of personal protective equipment, not necessarily because we have shortages, but some people want additional means of protecting themselves or additional kind of protocols for protecting their families. Um, and so what is someone is sending something funny? Um, oh so, yeah. Welcome to zoom. Right. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the emergency department definitely has had, you know, every day, the protocols are changing for how we are protecting patients, protecting ourselves, optimizing care, optimizing flow through the emergency department and the hospital, but it's just one big, amazing, uh, machine that's in flux. It's, is in constant change every day. And everyone's kind of working together. And I, I think in my experience, people have been really uh, pulling together in the same boat. I think there's a general sense across the hospital, across medical specialties, that we all have to be working together on this. And, and it, certainly in my hospital, I feel like that has worked very well. Yeah, so can you tell us more about your hospital? Um, Cause I kind of want to get into this. I know that it recently made the news because of how it's been dealing with the coronavirus and how it treats its workers and stuff. And I'll give you a chance to talk about that if you want to in a second. Um, but like you went, you were previously at Yale um, and kind of at this large teaching hospital. Um, and now you are not in a teaching hospital anymore. And kind of like, what's the difference for that in dealing with something like this? Yeah, so um, it is different. I mean, right now I'm at a community hospital uh, and we have a couple hundred beds, uh, um, inpatient beds. And, um, you know, I think in many ways, the, the hospitals like this, these are, these are hospitals which are already working on relatively small margins. And they're all really, I think, um, trying to be careful to protect what they can right now in this environment where um, a lot of the a lot of the elective types of procedures that hospitals like this tend to live on, um, you know, hip and knee replacements and uh, endoscopies with the gastroenterologist and these kinds of things, those have all been shuttered, right? So 
the, the landscape is changing very quickly right now for hospitals, which all of this, uh, all these elective procedures have pretty much been, been canceled. Yeah. So my, one of my friends, I think you've met her. She lives in New Haven. She's a midwife. She was saying that her practice oh, yeah. is firing people right now because they have no, um, there are no appointments for preventative care for midwives or for OBGYNs um, for, for people who are pregnant. And so they really, that was their, that was how they made their money. They didn't make their money on like the birth, like they made their money on preventative care. And like that also allowed them to like do kind of take in more patients and people on margins and do a sliding scale for people on and off insurance. And I'm, I'm kind of, you know, that does seem to be how to a large extent medicine works in the U S in certain ways, like that you allow that, that you allow these margins, like high margins for people who have insurance or high prices for people who have insurance. And like, you can give sliding scale to people who don't. So I'm curious what you like, are you like, what happened? I mean, ER is probably, you deal with probably more people who treat emergency rooms as if they are clinics or, uh, doctor's offices. Um, and then people who actually treat them like emergency rooms. And I'm wondering what's happening right now with an ER. Yeah, that, that has been a fascinating change, which I don't think anyone in my specialty, uh, really saw coming, which was that when we all started hunkering down and preparing for, the presumed tsunami of coronavirus patients, everyone sort of expected that we were going to need to clear the hospitals, clear the decks, and get everything ready for all these patients. And I know in, you know, in New York City, that's clearly been a major issue where that tsunami has hit. But for really the vast majority of the rest of the country, including where I am, thus far, it hasn't, it hasn't really happened. You know, we hasn't materialized. And so I know I can speak for our, our volumes, for instance, in our emergency department. I know that this is characteristic of most of the rest of the country right now. Our daily volumes are drastically less than what they traditionally were. Do you think that people are like injuring themselves and not coming into? No, I don't are? think so. I don't. I don't. I don't think so. I think uh, you know injuries would still typically come in. I think a lot of it is there are those kind of things that people might have otherwise come in for, but they they'll sort of tell lonely out people. The lonely well, people that feel, I mean, have an upset stomach and come in? You know, a lot A lot of times medicine is just sort of some supportive care and it is, people need time. People need time to heal through whatever their issue is. And many of these people can do it at home. And I think uh, in some ways it's it's going to be an interesting challenge going forward in our specialty uh, because we've, this has been kind of a natural experiment that is exposing in some ways, I think, the different ways in which the emergency department has, you know, is getting used maybe from what it was intended to be used for. Um, and now you're sort of just boiling it down to who really needs to come in and it's a lot less. Um, so that, I don't know, I think that's gonna, that may change how insurers uh, approach the emergency department. It may change the you know, financing in our field and for hospitals in general. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, been, it's been really, the numbers have been quite reduced. And a lot of hospitals I think are smarting right now because they're they're waiting for this to happen and it's not happening and every day they're sort of waiting and hunkering down and yeah it's it's, it's a very costly delay or wait and so where, where do you in your i mean obviously hospitals in new york they're not at the level of you know over overflow kind of northern italy situation but they're uh but they're stressed 
Uh, presumably, New Jersey is similar, just judging by the number of cases in New Jersey. Where, where do you have the sense, we've heard a lot about Michigan and, and Louisiana, where do you have the sense that the case volume is really stressing hospitals? And where do you have the sense that the case volume is just not there yet? And it's, it's kind of like an anticipated tsunami that hasn't crashed. Right. Well, I think the latter part of the question is easier to answer it. I mean, basically, the more the more rural that you go, for the most part, um, the less that the coronavirus has had an impact and that everyone had enough time to prepare and begin socially isolating, et cetera. And so as you get to, you know, you've, you've, you've probably read about in the, a lot of the red states in the middle of the country, they're all still waiting and they only had a handful of cases. Right. But they're still their hospitals are also kind of doing the same thing. Their folks are in many places socially isolating. The hospitals are kind of waiting for this to, to happen and it's not happening. So I think in, uh, especially in smaller, smaller areas, smaller cities, rural areas, it's gonna be extremely difficult um, for these hospitals to, to cope with this because they're, they're, just, they're just waiting for something to happen that's not happening. And they're just losing money in the meantime that will allow them to, prov like, to provide services to like lower absolutely people. right yeah. right you know that endoscopy or colonoscopy or something that they might have done and there was and, and that's a service that's, that's important for people to have but yes it, it could probably wait you know a couple months not unsafe for most people there's um, just going to be a bonanza of colonoscopies, colonoscopies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like everyone's yeah. going to be chomping yeah, at the bit total shit show and, so, uh, <laughs> let me give you an example that uh comes up in my life you know once or twice a year so I have uh, uh, violent uh, anaphylactic food allergies. And I would say 80% of the time, they don't reach the level that I need to be in an emergency room. And 20% of the time, they really do. And you never know when it's going to escalate until all of a sudden it does. Um, and so for the first, I don't know, 35, 40 years of my life, I basically just rode them out and didn't, you know, uh, I don't think I ever went to an ER. And then I was kind of read the riot act by an allergist who told me I was lucky to be alive. And since then I have been quite religious about going to ERs whenever I, you know, ingest nuts or sesame seeds, particularly sesame seeds. And um, what a and, bummer! I love sesame seeds. Yeah, sesame seeds. I'm are like worst. pretty ambivalent about those. I'm not missing anything. I got to tell you, uh, sesame seeds are telling me you love sesame seeds is roughly like telling me you love eating shards of broken glass. I mean, it, it doesn't move me at all. Um, <laughs> and like, it just strikes me as an eccentricity on your part. But you know, uh, now I look at it and I say if something happened this week, I would be much more reticent about going to an ER, both because I don't want to stress the system and because frankly, I don't want to be in an environment in which uh, the virus, you know, there's a lot of virus around. Um, and so my, my internal triage system about whether I need to go to a hospital has changed. I don't know how much, right? I, I like, I would still go in if I, you know, like 
thought my right. blood pressure were dropping, but I, I like the calculation of what you can ride out and what you can't is different than in a different environment. And I suspect that's a lot of what, what, you know, someone's arm is hurt, but, you know, or someone has a, a, a something that they would normally go in for, but the calculation is just different right now. Well, I think that's a great point. And, you know, since I'm, since I'm talking to two lawyers here, I can kind of, I'm not a lawyer. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Well, I'm, I'm, on, I'm the I only can't. lawyer in this call and I wouldn't trust <laughs> me for, well, go ahead. <laughs> the, the idea was, uh, you know, I think what you're getting at is sort of like that prudent, the prudent lay person idea. And I, I think in many ways, the emergency department has had a drift toward, you know, people have used it for all kinds of things. And, and now suddenly what you're describing is basically coronavirus has smacked a bunch of prudence into everybody, whether they liked it or not, everyone is forced now to make more of those calculations like you're talking about. Well, maybe can I ride this out at home? And the answer for, for most people probably is actually yes, I, I think. Um, that I think many people would be, would be safe to. Um, but also Doug, we've talked about this and like we've talked about specifically, and I've talked about this with other friends who are, I have like two other friends who are ER doctors and they talk about the reason people come in and they're like drugs, they're drug addicts, they want drugs right? Or they've overdosed. And so something's happened or they're lonely and homeless and want a place to and like want people to talk to her in a place to sleep. And then there's people who have legitimate concerns that like come in. And so there is like obviously triaging that happens in emergency rooms. But as you said before, there's a community support mechanism that happens in emergency rooms. And what you're basically telling me is like, or telling us is like, I think makes a lot of sense, which is that like the community support idea of people coming in um, kind of people both don't people are looking at emergency rooms right rightly or wrongly as like contagion zones they don't want to put themselves at risk I think and that out, so. yeah. right and that outweighs their wanting to socialize with people they're wanting to like have like to go to some go to a place to have a place to sleep they'll go to a place to sleep that has less risk um, I, I will say many of those conversations that you and I had on this were when I when we both lived in New Haven, which is do you, you, oh, materially so you, different. Your mind than, changed about this since living outside of Virginia or outside uh, of New Haven. Yeah, I think. Well, I will. I will say that my my patient population here in Richmond is markedly different uh, than it was uh, back then in, in New Haven. Um, my friends you know, who are similar, who I always like compared our conversations to, were in Boston and LA and Rochester. Right. New York. So like they were all middle, middle or large market cities. So I, I'm sure that has something to do with it. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that it is. I, I mean, I basically stand by those somewhat grim assessments uh, from, you know, at that time, uh, I would say certainly it really depends on where people are. And there's many different factors that go into why people go to the emergency department, obviously. But um, yeah, I think, I think a lot of people in many cases are getting are trying to have to figure this out at home and, and probably I, as far as I know I mean I'm not hearing any reports for instance that people are staying home you know to their to their actual detriment I think if they need to people are coming in but there is a lot of chaff in there too which has suddenly just gone out the window yeah all right we have a question from Jonathan Funk uh Jonathan uh unmute yourself and the floor is yours Or we can read his question. Yeah, he looks yeah. still muted to me. Yes, I can, he, yes he's still I can, muted. I can see it. So, so Jonathan is, uh, 
Yeah, he's basically asking if my hospital has altered their HVAC considerations or airflow and physical workflow. And the answer is definitely yes. And, and I've, I've really been impressed, honestly, uh, at the hospital's response on this. Um, you know, I can't speak for every hospital, but at least where I am, um, I feel like they've been very proactive um, in terms of they've been breaking windows, drilling holes through walls and creating a bunch of negative airflow. Right. So neg negative airflow is essentially where you have rooms that are on negative pressure, they suck air from the hallways through the room and then evacuate it out to the outside world, usually through a filtering system. And um, the whole point of that is so that the virus is not drifting out into the common airspace. And um, yeah, they're, they've done a lot already at the hospital to, uh, to maximize negative airflow rooms uh, in the ICU and other places. Um, so that's, that's one thing that they've done. Um, another thing is a lot of different emergency departments are doing all kinds of homemade uh, contraptions to essentially cover the patients. If we, if we have someone who's extremely high risk and we think that they have coronavirus, if we're intubating them or doing something else that might introduce a lot of their aerosolized germs, um, the idea is we have like an acrylic box with armholes. These are all just totally homemade, home constructed things. Many of them are made by some of the techs in their garage or there's companies that are donating some of these things that normally make, you know, I made a face because Ben and Ben's kid have been working on creating 3d printed masks. And oh, I, wow. Isn't that cool? That is cool. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you about that actually, but finish your thought. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt, but I got oh, excited uh, you... about you saying these homemade kind of things. I'm like, maybe like, like Ben's like Ben should ship you a bunch of like homemade masks, like CDC. Well, we, we, we can talk about that. Damned. Yeah, we can, we can talk about that in a second. Um, I know another one that I've seen was, a, it was basically a frame that was just made out of PVC pipes that went all the way up over a, a patient's bed and then was just draped in clear shower curtains. What the hell? Really? Well, they, 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 buy, they were able to buy them at the dollar store. So you can yeah. essentially make a disposable, the, not the, the frame I mean, itself it was going to be reused it just seems and, like and wiped so, down. It seems yeah. so jerry-rigged. It's completely jerry-rigged and, and there's no proof to it. And that's another funny thing is medicine, we're so used to doing everything evidence-based uh, and, and we want to know that what we're doing makes a difference and there's no harm. And now you're just seeing all this as crazy contraptions, you know, <laughs> you know, like a negative airflow they made with like a shop vac that's attached to a box and yeah, all this stuff. And everyone's using it. I mean, people are just putting it right out there. I mean, it's, it's one of those situations where theorizing why something would work is kind of the best you've got, right? Because you have no time for clinical studies, you have no time. So you have something that there's a, a good theoretical explanation as to why it would be effective, um, or at least X percent effective. And you say, as the president says of hydroxychloroquine, what do you have to lose? Which of course has an answer in the case of hydroxychloroquine, but I'm not sure in the case of a shower curtain hanging above a bed that there's a lot to lose, right? There is, there's a little bit that I, I do worry about. For the most part, I agree with you and I think you're right. And it's sort of refreshing to get to, to get sort of get back to that in medicine where you can just sort of wing it and say, well, it makes, that makes the most sense and <laughs> so I'm gonna do that. Um, but uh, there are at least potential downsides. I mean, you know, a lot of these times you're already in full protective equipment. You've got a couple layers of plastic on, you already have goggles plus a face shield. Now you got another layer of plastic. Before you know it, 
anything goes wrong, you start sweating, you can't see anything, right? So you have like, you can have visual issues, you can start overheating and getting really, really sweaty. I mean, if everything goes smoothly in an intubation and it only takes you two minutes for the whole thing, great, you're in and out. But I learned some- how to do an intubation with a pen knife, an X-Acto knife and a Bic pen. <laughs> that's, that's not <laughs> an intubation, YouTube. just so you know, that's not an intubation. What is that, not a medical degree? Like, I don't understand that. <laughs> Yeah, the cricothyrotomy. People love people love that for the movies. Yeah, I know. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, that's no, fine. <laughs> <laughs> I've thankfully I've never had to do one. I mean, I'm trained in it, but um, they seem gnarly. Uh, yeah, they are. They are. I think every time you're using a bic pen, you're in yeah. gnarly land, even if you're writing with it. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what is like Ben like? Like penning things Miss, with only yeah. a fountain, fountain, fountain pen. I only use fountain pens. Yeah. Only use fountain pens. Um, uh, there are potential downsides with any of these things, but mostly I agree with you. I think it's, uh, we might as well be trying a lot of these things and, you know, there will be some failures, but oh, we will also find uh, more solutions and people are amazingly creative with the, the solutions that they're coming up with. And um, I was just reading an article about people who are trying to, in uh, the country of Colombia, who are trying to build a ventilator for a thousand dollars and they have sort of different competing um models that they're they're all building sort of you know competing internal teams and they're going to totally nail this i mean people are going to be able to make amazing equipment that's going to be small portable simple it's not going to have all the bells and whistles that we're used to but mo- for the most part doesn't need to so uh how is your ppe situation what um uh uh are you reasonably supplied at this point? If you did experience a flood of patients, what would you run out of first? And are, how confident are you in the supply lines for things like masks, gowns, and ventilators? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think thus far, uh, this is another one of these issues where, I mean, perhaps this is just because we caught this early enough and the social distancing has been effective enough. And I know New York City, again, is a little bit of its own carve out um, because of just how much of a a difference, even just in the order of magnitude of their I've heard that like even New Haven has like 250 COVID like positive like people in beds in like New Haven. So like, I don't know if you've heard from anyone up there, but. No, I haven't. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's true. I mean, they have, they, they have a fairly big catchment area over at Yale and New Haven. So, um, you know, they, they are getting people all up and down the, the shoreline from Connecticut. Um, so yeah, they I wouldn't be surprised if that's true that they're hospitalizing quite a bit of people. But um, I mean, thus far, my experience has been that the, the equipment has been adequate and that we're finding new ways, which is uh, new ways to essentially recycle some of the material. So where the directive might have been to only use a mask once now suddenly it's you can use it five times <laughs> yeah isn't that funny it's just like you know like that in fact like, yeah. my friend my friend Disposable my friend in new haven yeah she said that like literally like two weeks before the covid thing happened they sent out a thing being like you should only use your n95 mask like one time remember to throw them away people like keep throwing them away like don't use it more than once for any one patient and then like now it's like Here's your N95 mask for two weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I know. We're, we use it up to five times. And then interestingly, you're supposed to store it in a brown paper lunch bag. Really? And why is yeah. that? 
Uh, I gather the, the virus survives less time on paper surfaces. And th this, is, this is a standard everywhere. You'll see people who are reusing personal protective equipment are storing them in brown paper lunch bags. Um, I, so there's gonna be a run on those, just so you know, that's just my hot tip for you. You should. <laughs> Can I ask a question really quick that's super geeky, which was like, I brought this up a little while ago on the show, which was that there is this chain mail going around from John Hopkins University, which is your alma mater. You went there for medical school. So like, I'm just gonna put you on the spot right now, but I, it was basically, it was saying it was, I put it as, um, how did I put it? I said it was like a dum-dum's guide to viruses and it uh -huh. described viruses. It was like viruses, like all, like the, the Corona disease is not, it was like used every word except for the technical word. It was like, is not a back, is not a living thing, which is viruses are like, you know, as you would know, if you're a dork like me, like is a hot contentious item, whether or not viruses are actually right. alive or not, <laughs> like, right. okay, sure. but like whatever, <laughs> putting that aside, it was like, not a living thing is protein wrapped in fat. And the only way to destroy protein, <laughs> oh, right. what? Yeah, it's I know. Bacon. It makes it sound like a piece of bacon. It makes it sound like you've just like, it's just destroy like the world with bacon. Like a hot dog wrapped in bacon, um, or like, or butter on the outside. <laughs> like, <laughs> And then it was like, the only thing that gets rid of it is things that break up fat, which are soap and alcohol that is above. I'm like, it's a phospholipid bilayer and it is broken up by nonpolar solvents. And like, I just like could not even handle like the amount of this was like, but it was good science. And it was like, it was correct advice about teaching people about how this stuff breaks down. Um, and so I'm kind of curious as to whether you think this is going to be a turning point going forward of how people are educated about differentials about disease between like bacterial infections or viral infections, or if you think there's going to be any change in how people react to that, to like, to, to being vaccinated, to like doing preventative care about these types of things, or if people are just going to keep having, I don't know, keep, if you think this is going to be kind of a PSA for, for biology and public health generally. Yeah. I think it's a great question. I'm sure you're onto something, uh, you know, so many people are are educating themselves and I mean, they're being forced to really in many ways. And, uh, but also I think there's a little bit of, um, you know, people are kind of geeking out on it. People are, they're learning about it. They want to be able to talk about they're it. Building and masks with 3D printers. I I just love the 3D printer masks. I think it's so great. It's we like didn't actually get to that. Are you, I'm just sort of curious. I mean, when I think of 3D printing, I think of things that are mostly solid. How, how flexible is this and does it have layers? So uh, we are still iterating it, um, but the we are doing it out of a, uh, it's not rubber, uh, it's a, but it's a highly flexible plastic called mm -hmm. P TPE, which, uh, you know, feels like rubber on your PPE, face. PPE, PPE. Yeah, exactly. Right okay. Exactly. And uh, we the design we're using has space for a, like has a bracket for a filter. Uh, so if one had a supply of N95 filters, you could put an N95 filter in it. Um, and it's just a, you know, it just covers this part of your face. Um, and it's, um, uh, we've been agnostic as we've been trying to sort of perfect it whether the proper use of it would be in a hospital setting 
which of course, you know, they obviously prefer FDA approved devices and they're not really supposed to use homemade hack stuff. Uh, so we've kind of imagined that we were, we were making them for, you know, people who work in grocery stores or, or uh, you know, people who, who need something, but, you know, maybe aren't as high priority as, as uh, hospitals. That said, as my son has continued to work on it, the last iteration of it was sufficiently impressive that I, I just kind of thought, huh, I wonder if, I wonder if somebody actually, you know, could use these. Um, and, you know, they're so inexpensive to produce. I mean, the, the whole printing apparatus that we're using costs less than $300. And, you know, once you have a design that is printing, you can, I mean, you, you, you know, you can't make it like at a, at, at a rate, like a factory, but you could put an array of printers together and produce, you know, not, not in substantial volumes of reusable items. And so, you know, I'm, I'm neither an expert in manufacturing, nor am I an expert in what hospitals need, but I am, interested so what's actually frustrating to me is that there's no guidance from either fda or cdc both of whom have put out these faqs on 3d printing ppe but none of them say okay here are specs that if you use these specs these would be reasonable for uh, you know for medical uh uh, uh, personnel to use under emergency conditions if they can't get their you know, a normal N95 mask. And so I, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting question that we can produce stuff at the level that we're able to produce, suggests that somebody who really knew what they were doing and had access to real equipment, um, which, you know, we're, we're basically playing with toys here, um, could produce stuff that was, um, you know, uh, much more substantial and critically do it much faster in much higher volumes. Um, you know, the design we were playing with was produced by a guy in Spain under the under contract from the government of Spain for emergency use in hospitals there. Um, and, you know, I think some of the European governments are, are really trying to make use of the hacker sort of maker community in a way that the... Uh, CDC and the FDA are clearly sort of more suspicious of it. But I got to say, when, when, when my son told me he wanted to do this, I encouraged him because, you know, uh, who knows? But I, I have been really surprised at how, uh, how substantial the masks he's been, he's been able to produce are. I mean, that's really... us, you should show us some of them next time. I mean, I can show you now. I, um, yeah. While Go you get guys them. are, yeah, that'd be awesome. Oh, I, I have some. I tweeted some pictures of them, and I'll I'll just bring them up on. I'll share a screen while you okay. guys are chatting. And Kate, I'm going to get back to your question that you asked me earlier. I, I mean, I think yeah. it is a good point that uh, the the public probably are going to take this as uh, a jumping off point for additional education and just an affluency with certain types of 
topics in medicine. Um, yeah, so I'm being a bit elitist specific. and jerky about like the like the protein wrapped in fat like <laughs> distinction, but like but like it's not wrong if you want to understand how to break up a virus. It is not like antibacterials are antibacterials. They're not. They're sure, not. Sure. Yeah, and we we're having right? like they're all not the time for, with people about why they don't need why they don't need like an antibiotic for their for their cough, yeah. for instance. Another good example here, I think, is going to be people are going to start to understand certain statistical concepts. Um, one, one example would be like the sensitivity and specificity of a test, which we talk about in medicine all the time. But, you know, at first pass, people talk about uh, a test for coronavirus. Like, okay, well, you know, it'll be positive or negative and that'll tell you things. Uh, no, as you learn more, you start to understand that you can have tests that are extremely sensitive and they're very good at picking um, you know, they'll pick up everything though. They get but they, they're more positives. likely to give you false positives. Correct. Or you can have ones that are very specific and right. only give you just what you want to know, but you get false negatives. And then there's a, there's a trade-off between those two things. You can dial in how sensitive you want tests to be. And people will start to understand that as they, and, and I, I have this conversation with people and other kinds of tests that have nothing to do with um, in, infection issues at all. But uh, you know, sometimes you find yourself really having to explain these challenges to people when I tell them about certain blood tests that I'm going to do. Um, and so you probably can't answer this for me because this is not, this is outside your spectrum, but like, I remember, so 28 days ago, um, we were driving to Cape Cod, driving to, leaving New York and we were listening to NPR and it was just like, all anyone could talk about was the virus. And it was just, it was like in the midst of everything flipping and like early that one week in March. And they had all of these people on, including the woman at Stanford who had developed the first tests that had failed to get approval through the CDC, like had been stymied by approval for the CDC and then had finally gone through after like the contagion kind of swept the country um, in Washington and California. And here is the thing that like John, my partner and I like could not understand what we're talking about at the time, which was like, why do we have to make our own tests? Why are we replicating tests? Like, why can't we use tests from other countries? Like doctors in China, doctors in Italy, doctors in Korea are not idiots. Like they are like, well, hopefully not, but they are controlled by different government regimes. But like, why can't there be a trade on tests? And why is there not like a collaborative effort to create some type of vaccine possibilities and like all of the nonsense around vaccines and whether or not you'd be able to create something for the coronavirus and it's like all of its mutations aside. I'm just kind of curious why there's not like, it seems like public health would be the one thing that people bond together on across borders and that there isn't like this kind of thing, but am I being super naive about this? You know, uh, yeah, I'm a little bit outside my wheelhouse on that one, but I, I, I think, know, I know, I um, thought it might be. It's okay. I'm just. Well, I think curious. part of it might just be practical issues around. I think a lot of these countries have just not allowed export of some of these things, right? So many places, they have, the governments have said you can't export these tests because we want them. We need every last one of them here, and so it, it may simply part of this may just be practical trade issues that don't. This stuff is not available in any meaningful quantity for export from those places. So I think that's a big part of it. Um, but I, I think, are you talking also about like uh, 
why are we reinventing the wheel on the technology? Well, like the tests, like the oh. tests seemed like a reinvention of the wheel. Like that, like all of the vaccine stuff aside, the tests seemed very much like a reinvention of the wheel. Like we like know how to test for this. Like why are we sending the RNA to a, of this disease to like, like at that basic level, why are we sending like the basic code to Stanford? Right. Right, Instead right. of sending like the final result and being like, here, these are the tests that we've developed and like here you can replicate them and this is how. But in fact, like it took them 10 days, 13 days, even though they did it way before like we had our outbreak to do this, like that there was a significant lag and I just don't quite understand it. Anyways, oh, Ben, sorry. Yeah. Are you going to show us some pictures? I am going to show some pictures. Uh uh, but I can't, uh, seem to here over out. here over where over by your face. Yeah. There you go. So here is a picture of the fully, uh, one full prototype. Whoops. Yeah. Of the mask, um, taking of course forever to load in. I didn't know that this was, I didn't know, by the way, that this was your mask, that this was like one of your built masks. Yeah, yeah so this, this is what, about what I was picturing from what you were describing. You know what I like about this is I feel like there's a big consumer possibility here. It's like, you know, you could have your Steelers and you have, <laughs> you have your one that's got like your Mad Max theme, like apocalyptic, you know. So like, there's that, yeah. Oh God, uh, it's super Mad Max. It's so Mad Max. I think oh, yeah. of it as more Darth this Vader. The the world. You gotta... Who wants to be my blood boy? More is Darth Vader than Mad Max, honestly. Um, it but, is a Vader uh, mask. It's pretty uh, great. Hang on, I, but then I, I have a picture that will show the uh, uh, the particular pliability of the material. Which um, here we go. Um, so that's with you know just bending it with no pressure, no particular pressure applied. Um, and whoops. Yeah. So that's, that's the mask. Um, and you know, that's, uh, with very relatively low grade equipment and, um, really stuff you can buy off of a shelf. And so my, my working assumption is that, you know, if in a, in a, emergency situation, there's probably something that thousands of people can produce in very large numbers, uh, which would be helpful. No, I think the problem is that nobody knows the specs of the thing that would actually be useful to the people who most need it. Right. Well, I, I, there's so there's certain aspects of, of the design that, that I like. One thing I was thinking is how you have parts of it that are, um, you know, like you say, if you have, if you have a large need for it, everyone can have one, right, or two, and then you have just interchangeable parts and the rest of it, if it's able to be wiped down or easily sterilized, well, that that's great. I mean, you can just reuse the same part, right, and then you just change out the filter. That's a good design. And I, I, I like that kind of thinking. And, and you will see some of the masks people get at hardware stores are built for similar things, like people who work in a lot of dust. Right. Most of that well, all of the mold, the mold, all of the mold ones are really like this. Correct. Yeah, correct. Um, 
I, I will say, so I think in terms of 3D printing and just mass production, it tends, I mean, from my understanding is it just tends to not be nearly as practical as most other forms of mass production. It's good for sort of custom fit, um, certainly like like a customized one, like this is a good example, right? This is a way to make one that I've fits been, I've person. been wondering that too. Like you said, it's a $300 like thing, but how many masks could you possibly make a day and how much does it cost per mask, Ben? So the cost per mask is vanishingly small. I mean, the issue is time. So I think we can print four of them at a time. We've and it would take about twelve hours to do a run of four. Um, so that would make eight a day if you had one printer. But if you put together an array of twenty printers, you know you could. Um, you could print a lot more and that array needn't all be in the same building, right? It could be 20 people all producing, you know, a relatively small number. Um, it is not the most efficient way to do it. On the other hand, we're not, the goal in, in a true emergency is not to maximize efficiency, it's to maximize numbers, right? And um, is it slower and of course, higher quality items will produce things faster. So, you know, are you talking about the optimum way to produce masks? Heck no, right? Are you talking about something where if a hospital were running out? Well, and... it also reminds me almost of like people running small scale printing operations in their in their basements, like during like, in various moments of like the revolution. It's like, well, no, is this a major printing press? No, but can we run a hundred of them or 200 of them or 300 of them at a time? Like leaflets? Like, yes, I feel exactly. like that's the same. And so it's like, I, I don't actually know what the utility of it is. Uh, our goal in doing it was to sort of figure out what we could do um, and you know, eventually produce enough to be helpful to some small number of people somewhere. But the more I saw of what my son was doing with it, the more I was curious. My initial thought was, that, you know, if this wouldn't be something that hospitals would actually use for lots of, you know, uh, regulatory compliance reasons. But the more I like you heard about what's going on in New York and like what the uh, you know, the less confident of that I was, honestly. And so I'm, 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 you know, we're still at the stage of doing one at a time and trying to, uh, trying to perfect it. But, um, but I'm, you know, and I'm certainly not confident that people who are more adept at it than, than we are, couldn't produce relatively large volumes relatively quickly. Um, so John Bordeaux asks a question, but doesn't want to be on air. And so I'm going to read it to you, um, Doug. My daughter is a registered nurse with the UVA system, women's clinic. She volunteered for the COVID floor floors, but has been told instead to get familiar with other main hospital functions and floors as possible backup. Do you see a similar strategy happening more broadly, planning for possible attrition among healthcare professionals? Sorry for the dark question. <laughs> I didn't really see it. Like, is it a dark question? I'm like, am I not seeing the darkness there? Maybe I'm not reading it correctly or like understanding it correctly, but um, it's maybe a dark question. Yeah, 
I'm not sure that I really see it as, as particularly dark, uh, I guess, myself. Um, I was able to see it a second ago. Let me see if I just- Oh, sorry. I like made it disappear, but it's- yeah, that's fine. I can, I can see it now. I'm able to see it. it. Yeah. Um, yeah, certainly you, we're hearing about this a lot where, you know, we'll go back to the, for instance, the endoscopy example. You've got endoscopy nurses, but no endoscopies, right? And you have whole teams that are set up to do a lot of these functions that are totally shut down. And so a lot of the hospitals are doing just this, where they're taking people to and and repurposing people, retraining. We're doing that in the emergency department right now, um, where we are trying to get, uh, we're, we're taking people from other floors, nurses who have most of the requisite training, maybe not all, they need to be updated on some protocols and certain ways that we do things. And then we can introduce them into the staff there or you know move people where they're needed. This is happening a lot. And there's there were emails early on throughout the healthcare system you know, warning people about this, get ready to, you know, to be flexible and maybe to move to different areas. I know for emergency medicine physicians, we haven't really been called to, to work in the intensive care units too much that I've been hearing about, um, but we were all prepared for that, that, you know, most of us are perfectly capable of doing, managing long-term critical care patients up on the floors if we need to. And so I thought that we would be getting more calls to be manning the, the intensive care units. Thus far, I think they've been able to cover them just because the volumes have been sustainable. Um, Do but, you think that that's because, I mean, like, and I'm not trying, like, I mean, it seems obvious that it's because people have been observing social distancing, but like, are you worried about some type of like pullback on that? And then it like, we're like causing some type of resurgence in people going out and this happening all over again. Like, do you have any predictions of how this ends? And I'm not trying to put that all on you as like, and like a doctor or an ear doc, we obviously understand your limitations, but I'm just kind of curious what you think. Right. Well, Yeah. I, I do have opinions on this. I mean, I guess I'm, um, it strikes me that the social distancing is is actually working very well. Um, I'll, I'll, again, I'm gonna sort of put an asterisk next to Manhattan, but, or in New York City, but in general, but, but sort of outside of the immediate area, um, it's worked well enough that I, you know, I do wonder uh, how long we're all gonna be kind of kind of waiting uh, waiting for this to happen. And when I, I think that the social distancing, I mean, at some point it has to relax. We know that it has to. Um, and we're probably just sort of bunching up some of these cases uh, or we're taking, rather we're, we're, we're redistributing them, right? So they'll probably just sort of happen later than they otherwise would have. But many of them are probably inevitable. I mean, people with bad pulmonary disease who smoke their whole life, at some point they're gonna get this vaccine, no vaccine. Frankly, I don't think a vaccine is on the immediate horizon. No, there I will know. be there yeah. will be additional treatments, though, and of course there will be more um, availability in the hospitals and you know more more resources available. Um, so I think that the idea of of flattening that curve and spreading this out over time will make sense. But yeah, we're going to have to. The, the, who knows exactly what the end game is? But we have to start letting people out, and and I'm not particularly afraid of that. I think that our healthcare system, for the most part, has shown its ability to. Um, to respond to this. I know there's been a lot of concern that we wouldn't be able to, but thus far, the underlying take that I'm getting from it is that everyone is scrambling, but making it work. And in fact, like I said, some of the, some of the concern is that maybe in certain ways it's working too well. And we've, we've really shut down so much that, I mean, it doesn't help anyone if in the end, you know, 
a quarter of primary care physicians go under because they couldn't sustain their practices, right? And all these clinics and physicians and hospitals go under. That that doesn't help people. Yeah, I feel like this reveals this entire aspect of the healthcare system, which is not about insurance or not insurance, which is about like capacity on critical care. (laughs) And like and that like and, and and the amount of like critical care for uh certain types of um like patients that can't pay for it paid for by patients who can pay for it that are like getting like i don't know nose jobs or whatever else like and not that nose jobs are not always non-critical but like like honestly they're not like sometimes they are but like you see what i'm saying like there's this kind of like there's this like there's a sliding scale of understanding understanding medical care that i feel like people don't understand that happens within the hospitals um and within the private regimes that is like difficult to understand in all of this yeah i mean we can't we can't pretend that it's it's not ultimately a business we have revenue there's major major overhead um and yeah i mean the hospitals and, and all the way, all the way from you know big hospital and healthcare systems, all the way down to the individual family practice doctor who, one, you know, the one doctor practice down the block from you. They all have to still manage their revenue streams, and I think that it's it has been an immense challenge. And yeah, you alluded earlier to the staffing company that I work for; uh, they made major headlines about two weeks ago now um, because. The revenue has dropped off so much with the drop in the patient volume. And what did they do about it? Yeah, well, yeah. So, I mean, first, you know, they asked us to just reduce our hours. And that that made sense because we were, many of us were just kind of sitting idle. I mean, we'll have days now where we'll have half of the patients that we would typically see in an emergency department, literally half. You know, we'd have a day where usually, yeah, 160, 180 patients through my particular emergency department in a day, sometimes up to 200 on a busy day. And now we'll see 80 to 105, something like that. Yeah, it's a big drop off and to have to accommodate it and have all the staff, you know. So I I am sympathetic to the hospitals and the the companies that are trying to manage this. On the other hand, it it does smart when we're all on the front lines gearing up, facing down the viruses and, and we've got, you know, cuts to our 401k and cuts to your, you know. But again, we should all, in the end, I think as physicians, we should all remember that we're still incredibly lucky compared to many, many people who are going to suffer gravely. No, I think that that's right. I mean, I think all of us are realizing that like anyone, like I made a joke the other day about how I was like, oh, I really wish I had my like, other six, other six pounds of heirloom beans that I have like, <laughs> like in my apartment in New York. I only brought six pounds of heirloom beans. I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of a prepper, but I'm like, I'm mostly just like, but anyways, I was just like, I hoard like, like luxury ingredients. And then I never use them because there was never the right time in my mind. I'm like, everything is so perfect. I can't ever, it's a whole thing. Anyways, my point is, is that basically you bring up something really, I think very important, which is this, that this is a moment for um, reassessing healthcare and how we understand healthcare and how we kind of assess our privilege in healthcare um, and like what we're entitled to. I don't mean that in a precious kind of like a precious way. I just really mean that in a, everything we've talked about from like deciding when to go into the doctor and deciding when to not. And like, maybe like that all of us collectively should have all of our elective surgeries 
whenever this ends. So to put everyone back into business or something like that. Um, so I don't know. You better schedule, believe it. Schedule, schedule your nose jobs for as soon as social distancing ends. Exactly. That's true. You should try and get on the schedules now because they are going to be busy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> making All up right. the difference. I got a couple more uh, questions. I, I When somebody presents in an ER with a, a COVID-19 uh, case that is ends up with an admission rather than you know, yeah, you may or may not have it. We'll give you a test and send you home. Sure, sure. What What does that person look like? What like What is the the creature? The the What is the COVID nineteen presentation that actually triggers a hospital admission? Oh yeah, that's a great question. The main the main thing that we see, and I mean, there's a lot of different aspects to it, but the one of the predominant findings for these patients is that they are profoundly hypoxic low in oxygen. So, you know, when we put that little meter on their finger and you're reading their oxygen levels, that's supposed to be a, a percentage. So like hundred percent or high nineties is, is good. That's what you and I are right now, breathing normal air. And usually when people start to need a little oxygen, it's say 90% or 88, put a little nasal cannula in their nose and give them some oxygen. People with more significant coronavirus, they're often significantly hypoxic. And some of them may be just sort of teetering. I've seen numerous patients who were in their 70s to 80s and their oxygen levels were 90%, 88. You walk them around the room, they drop down to 85. This is not someone that you can really send home because although they're actually, they're able to talk to you, they might be mildly in, in mild respiratory distress, they still need oxygen. But then that's kind of the best case scenario for these coronavirus patients who need the hospital. Those are the, those are the ones who are the least sick but still need a hospital. And then it kind of goes downhill from there with people who are profoundly uh, short of breath and um, and low in oxygen levels. And some some of these folks need very very intense amounts of oxygen that we're basically forcing into their lungs either with a ventilator, uh, but there's other mechanisms too that we're trying to to get their oxygen levels up. In addition, we see a lot of the inflammatory cascade that happens as your body fights a virus, which is the same thing. It gives you all the nasty fevers and chills and body aches, but that that whole system goes through the roof, which is part of the idea of the hydroxychloroquine that there's like a run on is, is part of what that does is tamps down some of that major inflammatory cascade. So Wait, I, want, I, think I want to ask you the hydroxychloroquine question, not because I normally would, but because since the president keeps talking about it uh, and it's therefore in circulation, I want to, I want your sense of, is it, is this a situation where the president is being irresponsibly exuberant about a, uh, a, a potentially viable therapy that people like you take seriously and are actually using, though we don't have good clinical data about when and under what circumstances it's effective? Or is this more of a, the president is, you know, is uh, talking out of his ass about something that's effective in a malarial context, but has really very little application here? You know, it's a great question. I think honestly, and it seems nutty, but really nobody knows right now. The true answer is no one quite knows, but it would seem to me that it's probably going to have some adjunctive role that is definitely not going to be some magic bullet. No way. But can it's I ask be used why NSAIDs 
are such the enemy in this, like in this fight. Like I've heard, have you, are you like, wait, wait, what are you, what are you doing that in emotion for? What is wrong with NSAIDs? I'm just going to let you interpret that however you want. I'm going to leave it hanging like that. No, stop <laughs> it. Now you're just going to let it's me more fun like, that way. take or not take NSAIDs. Stop it, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> It's a, I like live on ibuprofen. Give no, you can't. You can't. My understanding was they had a brief sort of flash in the pan concern. It was always theoretical around the NSAIDs, and then that 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 theoretical concern has has been kind of falling away. So I think that for the most part, you can go ahead and take all the ibuprofen that you want. Okay, that's like I mean. I guess like also, one you're of not the things coronavirus, I presume. So well, one of well, not yet. One of, the, one of the things that I've never understood about fever is that fever is like a symptom that begets other symptoms, and so it's like a, it is a symptom that like then gives you muscle aches and gives you headaches and gives you all of these other things. And if you can like actually take some type of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, uh, sometimes, most times, a lot of times, like like it'll help qualm a lot of like early on stage, like, um, bacterial or viral infections. Um, but it's, I don't know what to do anymore. Like everything seems like everything I feel like I've known, I don't know. And so I'm just trying to question everything. Oh, yeah. Welcome to medicine. I, I think it's yeah. hilarious. Sometimes in medicine where things that we were absolutely taught, you know, we're, we're, we, we don't do six years later, the, the, the whole cycle changes. Like, we used to, for instance, you open an abscess and then that was it. It was, it was, you're definitely not supposed to give any antibiotics. You solved the problem. Now the whole thing's totally changed. And now you give antibiotics after you open an abscess. Obviously you do like anything after you open like a wo open wound. Really? You didn't give antibiotics after that? Really? No. no. Oh, wow. Honestly, okay. not until like two years ago. Two years ago, maybe the data started. Let's open this giant, giant bubble of bacteria. Yeah, but now you've opened it. Now you've opened it. Up. Yeah, I don't know. It's funny. That but is there's a lot funny. of stuff in medicine that's like, you know, what, what was what was old is now new, and that kind of thing. Um, you know, what was anathema is now dogma. So you're not prepared to say either. Uh, I mean, if a patient uh, comes before you right now. Uh, Un under what circumstances, if any, are you actually using hydroxychloroquine? Okay, yeah, so to put a point on it, part of it is from the emergency department setting, it's, I mean, it's in medicine that we typically will probably end up initiating. I have not yet prescribed it even once, but my, but if we're going to do, be doing it, it's going to be in conjunction with our hospitalist colleagues or our intensive unit uh, colleagues to, you know, as we get the patient upstairs, we'd communicate about something like that, but to, to put a point on it, I think that the hydroxychloroquine, it's definitely being used. It's probably serving some adjunctive role where there's a few different medications all, all working together to tamp down the inflammatory cascade, which is what the problem is, is people get highly inflammatory. Uh, they That's where your blood pressure starts to drop, right? That's the problem where people are in sepsis, septic shock. Yeah, They're so, they have so much inflammatory markers that your blood vessels all dilate and your blood pressure kind of drops through the floor. And so we're trying to prevent a lot of those in inflammatory problems. And that's where it's coming into play. But there's also interleukin blockers and other, other medications that are, um, that are all kind of working together on this. I, I think it probably has some minor role. Uh, it's probably gonna be part of protocols going forward. Uh, it's certainly not 
a magic bullet and on its own, it's definitely not. That's helpful. Yeah, that is helpful. And I like this entire conversation has been so useful. Um, I really just feel like we have, I, I have a better sense. I know that like, that like Richmond, Virginia is not like being overwhelmed right now, but like, I still feel like you've given a really great sense of like how hospitals are coping and how they're talking about the coronavirus and how, um, you know, how that might differentiate between different scales um, and different economies. And so Doug, thank you so much for joining us at such like short notice. And this was great. Um, super, he- super helpful. Oh, it's my pleasure. And stay and, safe. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's always, um, you know, it's always a priority. And, but, but I, I do feel like overall, uh, I feel like we are able to stay safe. I think the teams have been working very well. Again, I'm speaking in, in my, just my own personal capacity and, and what I've sort of been hearing from colleagues, but um, it's, it's felt pretty safe to me. And like, we have the equipment that we need thus far and that everyone is doing their best to, uh, to protect it and preserve it um, and be ready in case, you know, things really, really start to go off the rails. But luckily, you know, thus far it's, uh, we're hanging in there. It's great to hear. Good. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much for doing the show. I can't wait to see more episodes too, now that I know about it. We will be back tomorrow. <laughs> it will be. Uh, uh, Hi, Doug. What? Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Tomorrow is our um, our just Kate and me, and maybe rapture a member of the audience into the conversation day. And of course, Sunday is mystery guest day, which Kate, you should start working on now so that you're not. I did, I did, I did. I started working on it, but everyone's like Easter Sunday, and now I'm having a problem. Oh, it's Easter Sunday mystery guest. Get Jews. Oh, I mean, like. I don't know. This any is what Jews people. are for. This is I, 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 like, I like you spill up on Doug. <laughs> you know, like, this no, is I'm why we're kidding. on the planet. It's to oh, Jesus Christ. Problems. But like everyone's having Seder on Chinese whatever Chinese restaurants night. in business on Christmas. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. My partner was like, I was like, do you want to do Seder? And he was like, well, let's just make hot and sour chicken. And I was like, <laughs> he was like the bitterness and the sweetness. <laughs> you know, that's great. <laughs> a Muslim colleague and I uh, at at Brookings, uh, she was joking with me uh, that she had never uh, felt uh, more Muslim in a professional context than working in the week bef- between Christmas and New Year's, um, and had also never loved it more. Um, because it's kind of great, you know, because like no <laughs> one's it. there, no one's decided to work. Um, and yeah, that's that's Jews on Easter and, and but Christmas. it'll be it'll be you and me tomorrow, Ben, and we'll figure everything else. Doug, again, thank you so much for coming. Oh, and, sure, my pleasure. Uh, stay away Rem- from the coronavirus. Give my love to everyone. Talk and to you soon. Remember, if you can't have fun in lieu of fun, you can still come play with us at Friday on on at five o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, Take care. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye, Doug.